Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my finest friends. Welcome to the third episode of Season 6 of the Tom Petty Project Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Before we begin this week's episode, I have to mention my friend Gwen Jones, who very sadly passed away last Thursday. Um, Gwen was on the podcast as a guest back in season two, and at the end of every episode, I mentioned the Tom Petty Fans Forever Facebook group that she founded, because it's such a positive space, not only in the Pettyverse, but on social media in general. Um, As a tribute to Gwen, uh, and to say thank you for everything she sort of brought into my life and into the lives of many others, I'm going to put together a bonus tribute episode to release over Christmas because she was such a huge part of the Tom Petty community and also one of life's truly selfless and nurturing people. So I think that would be, you know, one very simple way that I could, that I could, you know, pay my respects. So today we'll be talking about the mammoth third song from Southern Accents, Don't Come Around Here No More. And as a reminder, I won't be playing the song itself in the episode, but I always leave a link in the episode notes to the song so that you can go listen to it before we start and afterwards too, if you like. The long and winding backstory of this song begins with a mad Englishman named Dave Stewart, who some of you may remember as the genius musical partner of Annie Lennox in the Eurythmics, and most of you know as the hookah-smoking cake-pusher Caterpillar in the video for Don't Come Around Here No More. He's obviously also the co-writer and co-producer of this track and would go on to co-write two other songs on Southern Accents, including last week's It Ain't Nothing To Me, and more on Dave's eccentricities later. In his memoir, Sweet Dreams Are Made Of This, A Life In Music, Stewart recalls that after a rhythmic show in Los Angeles in 1984, which was attended by a huge array of musicians and record execs, He found Stevie Nicks in his dressing room doorway wearing a full fur coat. Stuart says, Underneath, she wore a black lace dress and she had that long flowing hair. I didn't know who she was, but there was something about her that I was instantly attracted to. Nicks invited him back to her house for a party and once there, he was left alone for quite a while as Nicks and her backing singers retired to the bathroom to indulge in a little, quote-unquote, marching powder. After a while, and tired from the show, Stuart went to bed in one of the four bedrooms waking at 5am to see Stevie in a long Victorian nightdress. He gallantly recalls, there was a fair amount of what I'd call skirmishing that went on. Before Nix eventually woke him at 9.30am and told him he'd better head out because someone was coming over to collect their clothes and things could get tricky. The Rhythmics then played San Francisco, after which Dave decided to head back to LA to hook up with Stevie again. In LA, he ended up serendipitously staying at the home of Jimmy Iovine, who, at the time, was producing Stevie's album, Rock A Little. Stewart played a demo of Don't Come Around Here No More for Iovine, which the producer loved and suggested be given to Nicks for that album. Stewart jumped at the chance to work with Stevie Nicks, having no idea that she and Iovine had formerly been a couple. The pair brought the music to Nicks, who spent an inordinate amount of time in the bathroom frantically writing lyrics that Stewart describes as Shakespearean and very odd. Iovine was not a fan, and when arguing about them with the singer said, Can you stop arguing with me in front of my friend Dave? You don't really know him. To which Nix replied, Your friend? What are you talking about? We slept together the other night. Slightly awkward, I think you'll all agree. Anyway, Nix stormed out of the studio, and Iovine decided that the only person they could draft in to help finish the lyrics was Tom Petty. 
Of course, the last album, Long After Dark, hadn't been a you know hugely happy collaboration with Petty feeling pigeonholed and restricted by Iovine's vision for the album. But ironically, he's the very man Tom would turn to to help rescue Rebels and finish up the rest of Southern Accents. So Tom comes in, loves the song, and the three men put together a demo and call Stevie to come and listen to it. In Warren Zane's biography, she says, When I got back the next day at something like 3pm, the whole song was written. And not only was it written, it was spectacular. Dave was standing there saying to me, well, it's terrific, and now you can go out and you can sing it. Tom had done a great vocal, a great vocal. I just looked at them and said, I'm going to top that? Really? I got up, thanked Dave, thanked Tom, fired Jimmy, and left. So if the song itself sounds strange and unique, it possibly owes a little of that to its wild origins. Tom recalls that he added in the change to double time and that he and Stuart worked on the song for around a month overall. He also recounts how he and Dave Stewart would party regularly in those days and that the pair went to buy matching rhinestone cowboy suits with embroidered skulls. Um, In conversations with Tom Petty, he says to Paul Zolo, he was a madman, but a really sweet one, really a sweetheart, but loony as they come. There's more about Dave later, but let's get into the song. Don't Come Around Here No More opens with that unmistakable drum machine loop, which is mechanical but somehow still manages to have an almost drunken stagger to it. Now, I've heard this song about a couple hundred times at least, but I don't think I'd ever noticed that little bit of fret noise right at the beginning, like right around the two-second mark, I'm talking right at the beginning. And this would be expanded onto tumultuous effect when it was played live on 1991's Into the Great Wide Open, which again I'll be talking about near the end of the episode. We also get that wonderful incongruous bass lick before the sitar lick comes in. And this was played by English bass player Dean Garcia, who Dave Stewart had worked with lots. Stewart apparently sent the tape to him in England, and then when the tape came back, as Tom tells Paul Zolo, it was just this real weird jazzy bass playing that was kind of useless, but I did keep that one lick that starts the song. And when you think about that bass lick and the tone of the bass, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the track. So it's another disarming, adventurous musical choice, which the song ends up full of. Onto that sitar sound. I'm not sure exactly how this was recorded because when you listen to it under headphones, it almost sounds like there are two parts, you know, one in the left and one in the right channel, or perhaps even like a synth in the right channel. But when Paul Zolo asks Tom whether it's a real sitar, Tom tells him, no, it's a choral sitar. It's like a guitar, but there's an auto harp thing built into it uh, under plexiglass on top. And when you go to look at photos of them, they really are an unusual looking beast. So what I'm curious about is whether the channel for the sitar is separate from the feed for the guitar signal or whether you could somehow sort of mic the sitar bit separately to get that real drone sort of vibe, you know, and so you could split those two signals out and put them uh, in the left and right channels. Either way, it's a trippy, spacey, and super, super cool part. Um, Once the main hook kicks in after four bars of that sitar intro, you definitely get that drone more consistently in the right channel. So now I'm super curious how it was recorded. And talk about impact with the first vocals, eh? Hey! Every person in every karaoke bar in the world will sing shout that word anytime anyone performs this. So there's so much texture in this opening refrain. The, the big synth bass, the multi-layered synths, the sitar, the drum machine, that are all underpinned by that droning E note in the right channel, softly buzzing like a patient but methodically intentful wasp. Uh, this is matched halfway through uh, this opening salvo by a high E note on the synth. And where I was critical about the mix of last week's song, 
every instrument here is woven together extraordinarily well. It's almost like this song must have always existed and didn't even need to be recorded. That's how perfectly everything fits together to my ear. Pozzolo asks Tom whether he's ever intentionally tried to write a song specifically to be a single. And Tom answers that he doesn't do that usually, but this one was written definitely with that in mind. He says he told Stuart, let's write a hit song and make it a really interesting single. Now, when you bear that in mind, even for 1985, the intro to this track is long. It runs to just about 50 seconds before that first verse even kicks in. And when you think about how short and punchy some of those early singles were in the Heartbreakers catalogue, this song wouldn't have gotten anywhere near an album, let alone a single release. When those vocals do come in, it's Tom Petty in full, aggrieved character mode. Don't come around here no more. It's such a powerful line. And I think some of the power of it comes from it sounding like a real exhortation, which obviously it was, and which I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, the music underneath this verse section doesn't move or shift a whole ton. Uh, and you have that E, A, B, A progression with that droned E note and the synths panning everything out. So all the movement in this section has to come from Tom's vocal. And boy, does he deliver. You can really see what Stephen Hicks was talking about. Uh, there's also another little curveball uh, in this song with a female vocal harmonies coming in on whatever you're looking for. This inclusion also owed a lot to serendipity and again to Stevie Nicks. She was recording at Sunset Sound at the same time Petty and Stewart were laying down the tracks for this song, but hadn't shown up for her session. So her backing singers were hanging around with, you know, nothing to do. And according to Tom, Dave said, let's get them out here and see what they can do. Now, I recall talking about the inversion of the typical song structure in a previous episode, but I can't remember for the life of me which song it was. So this one feels like it starts with the chorus, don't come around here no more, but it's the verse. Then you get the bridge, or it's almost an elongated pre-chorus in which we hear that fantastic cello part that comes in with only the drums and the vocals. The synths and the sitar just fall away from the limelight on that big stop. And of course, there has to be a story behind every part of this song, and so there is with the cellist. Tom recalls saying to Dave Stewart, a cello would be good, and the eurythmic responding, don't worry, I'll get a cello player, before scuttling off to find one. The guy he finds is Daniel Rothmuller, a cellist with the Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, who has never once played with a rock band or even played without music in front of him. You can feel Tom's amazement coming through the pages as he tells Paul Zolo he'd never played anything that wasn't written down, and Dave said, you're going to have a lot of fun tonight. He goes on to say, we just got the guy to start to jam, and he was elated by it, he was amazed by it, that he could just start to play something and it would sound good. So another meeting of worlds as bizarre and unlikely as the entire song. And in this verse section, we also get those beautiful ah, ooh, harmonies. God, I sang that badly, hey? Harmonies from Nick's backing singers. And there aren't a lot of words in this section, but they're punched out with an anguished howl by Tom's pinched, pained vocal delivery. As we head back into the chorus, we now get those big, full harmonies on Don't Come Around Here No More, and the song really feels fully alive. The call of those harmonized vocals are met with that wonderful upbeat synth lead part, call in the left channel, response in the right, and the busy wasp is back, weaving his way through the shimmering wheat field of those synth pads. It's just sonically spectacular. The second pre-chorus bridge section features some fantastic backing vocals behind Tom's lead also, and then we get that heartbreaking line, stop, you tangled my emotions. And that's such a great, unbelievably brilliant way to describe the hurt and the pain that you feel in a relationship that's gone south. The knot in your stomach, the conflict in your brain. Tangled is the exact right word that describes it. So the lead then into that second chorus hangs on that root E for four bars. So again, it's just that little, very subtle change. Uh, and if you listen closely in that last bar, you get this vocal and or synth swell. Oh, 
it's like a build, possibly, you know, it's, it's, I think it's both, and it's really low. Um, so while it doesn't seem like there's much going on in those sections, they sound like they're pretty standard and pretty kind of fixed as they move along. The musical textures are shifting very subtly to build to the frenetic conclusion that we all know, you know, now that we've listened to it, is coming. And another little, 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 little twist is in the lead vocal in the left channel on the second Don't Come Around Here No More in this second chorus. It steps up to a harmony note instead of the root note before falling back in line. The last verse starts with the word stop, which is such a clever way to loop back to that big cry in the pre-choruses. Now the song has one more trick up its sleeve, and it's a doozy. Instead of going to the pre-chorus and chorus again, the song swings up into double time, with Mike Campbell's guitar cueing us in. And every single time I hear that guitar start, and I mean every single time, it's hairs on end for me. You know, it's one of those incredibly theatrical moments that just makes your heart swell. And it's like, yeah, this is what music's about, baby. And this is also where we hear Stan Lynch blowing the doors off on drums and how we Epstein pounding that bass line out. So now we've got, we've gone from the sort of the, the synth and the drum machine and the mechanical part of it to the heartbreakers in full rock and roll mode. Mike is playing some super tasty wah pedal heavy licks and the cymbals are mixed really high, washing over the, the cacophony, you know, kind of like waves crashing on a beach. Um, we're also treated to that extraordinary high note from Stephanie Sproul. I think it's pronounced Sproul. Uh, and of course, there's one last story associated with this. Tom tells Paul Zola that she, Stephanie, was having a little trouble finding her thing. And Dave actually ran into the room in his underpants as she was singing that bit. And that actually worked. And she went up into that register and hit that note. So who would have ever have thought that Dave Stewart's underwear would be responsible for one of the highlights of one of the most iconic, recognisable songs of the 1980s? Okay, folks, it's that time again. It's time for some petty trivia. Your question from last week was this. How many number one singles did Tom enjoy both solo and with the Heartbreakers on the US rock chart? Is it A, 0, B, 6, C, 10, or D, 15? And I guess this was a maybe a slightly trick question in that you had to pay attention to the word rock in US rock chart. Unfathomably, Tom never had a Billboard number one single, either solo or with the Heartbreakers. However... Tom did enjoy 10 number one singles on the US rock chart. They are The Waiting, You Got Lucky, Jamming Me, I Won't Back Down, Running Down a Dream, Free Falling, Learning to Fly, Out in the Cold, Mary Jane's Last Dance, and You Don't Know How It Feels. Don't Come Around Here No More peaked at number two on the US rock chart, as did You Wreck Me. Your question for this week is this. Tom Petty's adopted son is named after one of his fellow Wilbur's bandmates, but which one? Is it A, Roy, B, Dylan, C, Jeff, or D, Harrison? Okay, back to the song. The title actually comes from something that Dave Stewart overheard Stevie Nicks say to her ex, the legendary James Gang and Eagles rock and roll party animal, Joe Walsh, as he was heading out the door to avoid things getting tricky. 
Uh, I also talked earlier in the episode about how long the intro is, and we know that it's a very unique, quirky song. It's hardly a surprise then that the record company had serious misgivings about putting it out as a single, let alone the lead single from the album. Tom tells Paul Zolo that he used Prince's single, When Doves Cry, to show the company that you could do something interesting and different, but still have it be a hit. The song went on to become the Heartbreaker's second biggest hit to date after Don't Do Me Like That, peaking at number 13 on the Billboard chart, and as previously mentioned, number 2 on the US rock chart. It would also, of course, become one of the most memorable music videos of all time. In the Going Home documentary, Tom says, There you have it, you know. You can write the song and do your best, and in the end, the video is probably going to leave the biggest mark on the listener's mind. So, flashback. As I was listening to this song about, I don't know, I think it was six or seven years ago, my wife pipes up, I love this song, who's it by? When I told her it was Tom Petty, she looked shocked and said, man, there's so many songs that I like that I didn't know were by him. So I then asked her, you've seen the video, right? To which she surprised me with, no, I don't think so. After viewing it, she was both amused, you know, confused, and more than anything left with that indelible mark that anyone who has seen the music video is left with. A permanent and unshakable association between Tom Petty, Alice, and the Mad Hatter. Now, as with all Heartbreakers videos, Tom had a major creative say in how the thing was scripted and presented. And when Paul Zolo asks him, were they your concepts for videos? Tom responds, I think more often than not. Actually, I think they were always my concept in some degree. That's the way we are. We wouldn't want to be put in a situation that we had no control over. He goes on to ponder whether the very clear imagery of Alice in Wonderland left less space for listeners and viewers to create their own narrative around the song and says, I don't think you can hear Don't Come Around Here No More and not think of that video. It's impossible. And that wasn't so good. I think it would have been better to be a little more ambiguous. But he goes on to say that the other side of the coin was that it was like a new kind of art form, and it was very exciting to be involved in. The video, of course, starts with Alice wandering through a giant mushroom patch, the largest of which seats Dave Stewart as a hookah-smoking caterpillar playing sitar with very long fingernails. He feeds her a piece of cake which tumbles her down into a psychedelic checkerboard nightmare. You know, that's the rabbit hole. Um, with Tom assuming the role of the Manhattan, top hat, cup of tea, and all. The lighting is very bleak, and the close-ups really make things more disconcerting. Um, other members of the Heartbreakers come into the scene to ply Alice with an oversized chair and an even more oversized cup of tea, and we then see checkerboard harlequins playing the cello parts of the song with flamingos as bows, all very trippy and Lewis Carroll-esque. Tom's suit and glasses change size, the teacup gets bigger, and Tom sings directly to Alice as the Heartbreakers come in and out of shot before finally joining the meal. Now, I wonder in this scene who was the Dormouse. My guess is Benmont. I don't know why, I just always think that Benmont would be a very good Dormouse. There's a wonderful nod to the scene in the book as the diners all change before things take a very surreal turn for the worse with an incrementally more piggish baby in a stroller. Size shifts take place again with Alice now being immersed in Tom's teacup, at which point the song shifts to double time and Alice's body becomes a cake, which Tom starts to carve up and serve to the other heartbreakers and the Harlequins. The video ends with Alice's face disappearing down Tom's gullet before he burps into the camera and the video ends. This closes the song out about 35 or so seconds earlier than the fade out ends on the studio version and caps a hallucinogenic whirlwind of a music video. But here's the weird thing. Even though there's so much going on and visually it's chaotic and you could easily forget that there's a song going on, the video matches the tone and menacing edge of the song perfectly. It's a really dark nihilistic lyric set to that shiny pop, you know, sonic bubble bath. I don't feel you anymore. You darken my door. Stop walking down my street. I've given up on waiting any longer. You know, that line where Tom sings, I've given up, you tangle my emotions. Then the next line, honey, please admit it's over. This is a tortured soul who wants to be released from his misery. And the video echoes that thematically using Alice's inability to escape the tea party as the replacement metaphor. 
No wonder it's still one of the most popular videos ever made and was on constant repeat on MTV and up here in Canada on VH1 for so many years. Look, I know this is a long episode, and I promise I'll let you wonderful people get back to your live soon, but I did want to talk about the live version of the song from the 1991 Into the Great Wide Open tour, as it's one of the truly exceptional all-time arrangements and presentations of a song. My good pal Pete Nestor commented on my preview post that he saw this one live in 92. His comment was this, will always and forever be one of, if not the, best songs that I've ever seen performed live. So there you go, Pete. You've got your hat-trick of name checks. <laughs> in all seriousness, though, as I say, I can only imagine how unbelievable this one must have been to see live. I've included a version of this performance in the episode notes. It opens with about three and a half minutes of inventive virtuosity from Mike Campbell, in which he uses a big delay effect on one guitar, setting up a repeating lick before setting the guitar down carefully on a stand and strapping up another one playing around that lick. To me, this part invoked imagery of the Scottish Highlands, and I think they might have even cribbed some of the chord progressions and changes from where the streets have no name just because thematically they they work on you know with, with the synths coming in. We then get the drums and bass and Mike wailing on that second guitar before he lays on his second delay progression and sets that guitar down to move on to a third instrument, an electric bouzouki. And yeah, I had to look that up too, uh, which he plays more like a thrash guitar than any sort of you know eight-string instrument. Stan's now pounding out the toms and kick with big fat drum mallets, and you can hear the crowd whipping into a frenzy as Mike turns and looks up to the back of the stage as Tom appears at the top of a flight of steps. And we're around three and a half minutes into this cavalcade of sound at this point, and it doesn't look like it's letting up anytime soon until Tom gives the arm signal to cut the music. Cue dramatic pause. As the camera comes back, though, you get the tail end of Mike bowing to Tom, which feels half deferential sort of in character during this performance and half you're welcome because he just melted the faces of tens of thousands of people using nothing but ten fingers and a lifetime of playing guitar until he could make it do his bidding at will. Um, after another six or seven seconds, the music comes back in and the faders come back up on those delayed guitars. And as an aside, I don't, I'd love to know how that was choreographed. I don't know whether, you know, when Mike set those guitars down on delay, I think probably what they did is just drop the faders and cued Tom back in to say, this is when we come back in. Um, or whether it was sort of, you know, played to a tape, I don't know. And either way, it doesn't matter because it, it's, uh, you know, thematically and sort of cinematically, it's brilliant. So then Tom walks down, holsters his guitar, and Mock stumbles across the stage, eventually sitting down on a large chest as the instrumentation drops back to a more subdued level. Benmont's piano and Stan's tribal drums give this section a really ominous tone as Tom realizes he's sitting on a chest and turns to look in mock awe before signaling for silence. This is Benmont's cue, or maybe Scott Thurston's cue, to sit on a deep synth fifth as Tom opens the chest to reveal a blinding light from which he pulls a top hat, as Stan starts that iconic drum beat. The crowd goes absolutely bananas at this. Tom puts on the top hat, and the song begins. Now, I'm a huge fan of theatrics at shows when they're done well. I love Peter Gabriel, Genesis, Iron Maiden, Alice Cooper, etc., but I don't think I've ever seen a better intro to a song than this. It's like a mini opera, and the smile on Tom's face when the house lights lift to reveal the band more fully is wide and genuine. It just feels like he's enjoying the hell out of every, every single second of this. Now, the sitar part in the live performance is actually being played by Mike on, I'm pretty sure it's his Red Gibson SG. And I won't go over the entire song other than to say it's hard to imagine a band being able to play this track live and do it real justice. But this is the Heartbreakers and Howie's harmonies, Stan's willingness to sit in the pocket, and the combination of Stan, Howie, and Scott on the harmonies is just unbelievably beautiful. Watching Howie sing this one actually brings a lump to my throat quite often. Um, 
the other last thing I'll mention musically is the way Benmont brilliantly subs in the piano for the synth. Talk about how to take a magnificent original song and make it even better. You know, and to cap the whole thing, the stops are provided by the audience. And I can only imagine how hair-raising that must have been to actually see live and be a part of. Speaking of the audience, we also get an audience participation section in the middle with Tom bringing the crowd into clapping out the beat. Mike's using that phase wah-wah tone as the band drops the tempo and makes the chorus way more sultry. How do we come out of this section? Of course, with the change to double time. Cue more wah guitar and Tom strutting around like the rock god he is. But again, this song has twists, so the performance needs twists. It has turns. And live, why would that be any different? A strobe light kicks in. The frenzied instrumentation continues. And then men in ex-president masks chase Tom around the stage. Reagan... Nixon, can't quite see the third, I'm not too sure that is, and I'm not a huge American mystery buff, but the Heartbreakers just playing for fun now and making way more glorious noise than any band has the right to be able to do live. Tom disappears, then reappears holding a big red peace sign, repelling the masked intruders. It's also gloriously theatrical and chaotic and over the top, but it fits the song so well. The song then closes with a huge rock ending as Tom staggers back to the chest, removes the top hat, and places it back inside, almost saying the energy comes from this top hat. So we put it away, we take that energy out. And as he slams the chest shut, we get that final drum crash, and the audience, drunk on adrenaline, roars out their final approval. <laughs> folks that's all for this week tom tells paul zolo it's so unusual it's not like anything i've heard before and i've talked before about hard left turns that the band took including on last week's song it ain't nothing to me but this isn't just a hard left turn for the heartbreakers this is one of rock music's most unique and least imitable tracks ever written it's up there with eleanor rigby or we will rock you in that nothing else had ever really been done that sounded like that song at all one of my regular listeners, Bob Reedy, mentioned that this song is great, if a little overplayed, but it's a song I find new ways to love so often, and going through it for this episode and digging into the history of it has breathed renewed life into my love for this song. It's a remarkable sonic and creative achievement, and though it's one of the you know, greatest hits in brackets, it's also one of those, it's, it feels like a deep cut that bands record, they're so outside the norm that they don't really fit anywhere. John Paulson and I will definitely talk about that on the season wrap this album, but taking on musical, lyrical, and compositional merit alone, this is as strong a ten as I can ever give. It's perfect in every detail. Yes, it doesn't really fit Southern Accents in the original concept that Tom had, but it soars as a piece of music, is elevated in video form, and perfected in one of the most brilliant live arrangements of all time. Ten out of ten, and if you disagree, you're just damn crazy. Please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, and I would urge you to do so if you have the means. As always, I've added a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, and I will continue to do that. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network, so go check out all those shows on at Deep Dive Podnet. I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. Again, they're great people, they do great work, and they're new members all the time, and they're so supportive of each and every show that's on the network. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And of course, you can always find me on YouTube. 
So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable, leave ratings, don't leave ratings, tell friends. You know what, again, like I said last week, tell your friends. If you enjoy it and you've got friends who are Tom Petty fans, you know, tell them about the podcast. It's great to get people involved in these conversations and I really love interacting with you all on social media. Um, again, as a reminder, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with the Tom Petty Estate in any way. When you're looking for Tom's music, please visit the official YouTube channel first or go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, all those legal streaming uh, channels. Uh, when you're looking for merchandise, go to TomPetty.com. Tons of merch there, tons of great stuff. Uh, and please don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and, of course, the Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. Um, they're great fan communities and they're well worth spending a lot of time in. So until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about the last track on side one of Southern Accents, which is the soaringly beautiful song of the same name. Bye-bye.